I'm Kristen Kelly, and this is Mom School. There's this feeling, this constant sort of almost unconscious feeling that any misstep, and if I take my eye off the ball for one second, it's all going to fall apart. Like it's, this whole burden is on my shoulders for the health and happiness and success of this future human being. Like I would tell 27-year-old Liz, when, you know, just put all of that to the side and do the best you can. Hi, guys. Clearly, I have not kept my promise to release my podcasts on a regular cadence, but that's because my mother has been in town for two weeks and we have done absolutely nothing productive. We've watched Dateline and Intervention and Hoarders and drank martinis and ate nachos and shrimp cocktail and went to the pool. I've literally done nothing productive and I've been beginning to feel like shit. So it's Monday. I am holed up in my husband's office, which I've turned into my office. And I'm really, I'm fired up. I'm fired up to release this episode. I just had another podcast interview. I have another one on Thursday that I'm really excited about. And I just fucking love doing this. I love doing this. And I'm really happy that you're listening to me. So today's episode is with Liz Vaccarello, who is the editor-in-chief of Real Simple Magazine. She was the editor-in-chief of Parents Magazine. And as you'll hear in the beginning of the episode, I fell hard, girl crush hard on Liz when we did an episode for People Now Together. I was like super pregnant. I felt like shit that morning. And she was she's just a good woman. She is a mother of two. She has twin girls. And we talk about how she became editor-in-chief of one of the biggest magazines. We talk about her postpartum period, rising the ranks in her career, and having newborn twins. It's freaking madness. But Liz has some incredible insight and advice, but not like preachy advice. She's just a wise soul, as corny as that sounds. I knew that from the moment she walked in the room. She walked in with these like cool white boots. And you know those people that walk in a room and you're just like, ooh, who's that? That's how I felt to Liz. And she has the advice that she would tell to her former self, which is so good. I am writing it down, printing it out, pasting it on my vision board, She's good. She's just a badass mom, a badass woman. I'm so grateful that she came on here to chat with me. With no further ado, here is my chat with Liz Baccarello. I met you while we were shooting People Now, and I was so pregnant. And I remember... so cute. They were like, you're going to be talking with the editor-in-chief of Parents Magazine. I'm like, I am in no way, shape, or form in a state to be doing this show, let alone on the show with an important guest. And you walk in and you're like one of those people who you don't need to say anything. People just kind of turn and look at you. And I don't know if you remember, but you were wearing white boots and you're just like a presence. Like you were a force when you walked in that like everyone looks at you, even though you hadn't said anything yet. And I mean, we've all seen like Devil Wears Prada and I was kind of expecting that vibe and 
totally not the vibe I got from you. You were sitting on the couch and I remember somebody walked in, an editor, an assistant editor, and they'd asked you about the cover of the magazine and you were so personable and kind and you just marked up the paper. Then you turned to me and you talked to me and I always judge people on how they treat everybody in the room and everybody from like the production assistants to your assistant who was in the room to everybody. You were just gracious and kind. And I was like, shit, I really like this woman. Oh, and, then, <laughs> and then as we were switching, it's true. And as we were switching studios, we talked briefly about your daughters and we got to talking like a little bit, but then the segment started and we both went about our day. And as I started this podcast, I was like, just looking for inspiring women who've gone after what they want in life don't feel guilt about it in motherhood. And I remember being like, maybe Liz, maybe she would talk to me. About you are so sweet. I love talking that, about career and motherhood and being a woman and I'll talk about anything. And you're lovely see, to talk that, to. Thank so. you so much. But that makes me happy because I remember covering a movie premiere for people a couple of years ago. And one of the reporters had asked, I probably shouldn't say who it was, about being a working mother. And right, that's like a generic question on the red carpet. And women get annoyed because they're like, well, do you ask the men this? And the annoying part is that we don't ask the men. I think it's still a good question because women grapple with how to parent and work because it's an art and we all do it differently. But I'm so glad that you're open to talking about it because some women are like, you don't ask men this, so don't ask me. And I'm like, Oh, but I still want to know, (laughs) you know? Kristen, that's an excellent point. Like, I think the mistake culturally that we've made is that we haven't asked the men. I think that's so right. Right? It's a good question. And I think we all wonder how, when we look at a successful woman and they look like they've got it all together with these beautiful (laughs) kids and an amazing career, I want to know how they balance it. But before we get to that, how the hell did you get here? So you are now editor-in-chief of Real Simple. You were editor-in-chief of Parents Magazine. You've held other positions before that. How? How? Okay. (laughs) I'll give you the Reader's Digest version of my rise. And it sounds like it's going to be long, but it's not. I want it to be, so so don't worry about it. (laughs) It's a little bit (laughs) untraditional, so I like to share it, particularly for the young moms who are listening or for young people who say, that job sounds so cool. Making a magazine, being a writer, how do you start? And, you know, the answer is often... It's not one size fits all. So I'm from Cleveland. So is my husband originally. And I went to the University of Michigan wanting to be a business major. I don't know how kids today are so focused and know what they want to study. Like I was just like, what? I want a college degree in business. I did the same thing. Right. So I got to Michigan. One semester I had accounting, statistics, econ, and like an English writing class. And you can tell where this is probably going. I was like hating the business classes and struggling to get B's and loving the class where I was talking about words and sentences and ideas. And so I made the pivot to, I decided I wanted to be a writer. And I knew very early I wanted to write for magazines and not write for, at the time there was no internet. I sound like I'm a hundred years old, but it, it was either like magazines or newspapers, right? And I knew that I wanted magazines because I like to tell stories and not just report news and magazines offer you a little more time and space to think about your ideas and to develop characters and all of that. And so I returned after Michigan to Cleveland and I had a few jobs there 
ultimately I became the editor-in-chief at a young age of Cleveland Magazine. And so I come from a city and regional magazine background. And my husband's a photographer and he was doing very well in Cleveland as well. And we weren't married at the time. And he said, well, I'm moving to New York because I'm going to be Richard Avedon. I need to be New York. And I was like, okay, see you later. Because (laughs) I am like big fish in a small pond, editor of Cleveland Magazine. But then he did. He really moved. And 30 days later, we got engaged. And so I was like, okay, all right. So now I have to move to New York. During those years where like everybody was fleeing to digital. And so there were openings at a lot of the print magazines. So I just sent my resume to every publishing company in New York. And then I also targeted specifically the magazines that I personally liked or had an affinity for in terms of their content. And one of them was Fitness Magazine, and they happened to have an opening for an articles editor, which is like three editors down. So I got the job and I moved to New York. They actually like gave me $1,500 to move to New York. And, you know, sometimes you just got to put your foot in the water and like try these things. And I got the job. So I stayed at fitness for about seven years. About halfway through that, I became the executive editor, number two. And then I moved over and became editor-in-chief again of a publication called Prevention. Are you familiar with yeah, that? It's a little health course, magazine. Yes. Loved it. It was published by Rodale. It was natural cures and organic food and yeah. exercise and fitness and mental wellness. It was a wonderful publication. So it was there. I stayed about five years, wrote a few books for them with registered dietitians and with doctors. I was like the co-author of some books. So I never say, if I said I wrote some books, I don't want to this name and I co-authored the experts. I would never say that like I made a diet because it was the the registered dietitians who did. So I stayed at prevention for about five years. Then I went over to the Reader's Digest Corporation and for 11 months at the time, they owned Rachel Ray's magazine. She wanted somebody who could like go on TV with her because she didn't like holding up the magazine and showing her own face. So she needed like a buddy to be like, Rachel, look how cute you are, you know, and who could also run the magazine. So I did that, but then the company sold Rachel's Magazine to another company. And they said, we want you to stay here at Reader's Digest. Will you be global editor-in-chief of the brand? And I said, oh my goodness, never in my wildest dreams did I ever think I'd be an editor of a global magazine like the magazines I used to read when I was in Cleveland. Like I read The New Yorker, I read Vanity Fair, I read Reader's Digest. You know, when I was a kid, I got Life Magazine. And you never know where your sort of life path is going to take you. So That was in many ways, one of my favorite jobs that I've ever had because the readership is so loyal, so engaged. And the mandate was really just to write any article, any story that is of lasting interest. So you just literally curated the best of the best in any category. But so I stayed there for about five years and decided it was time to move on. The company was in trouble. And then I came over to the Meredith Corporation, from which I had left when I left fitness. So they hired me to be at parents. And at the time, I ran all of the parents' magazines. So I was a hands-on editor-in-chief of parents, which is the youngest title at the company. And, you know, its readership is a median age of 32. So it was nice to go from editing for an older audience to editing for young moms, millennials. And I also had purview over a few other magazines at the company. So it's been a nice exposure. The right company for me 
it has the right sort of vibe in terms of it's not de- like you said before devil wears Prada like it's not that <laughs> kind of place at all I would not even if I tried couldn't fit in right, right. to some place like that it's good people who love their brands yeah. love to tell stories and about six months ago now the management said you've done a wonderful job with parents you've elevated it refreshed it made it a little more fun I changed the tone to be more like everybody let's just be able to laugh at ourselves let's be a little more relaxed about parenting rather than the kind of finger waggy approach that it has why I fell in love with you Ah. you did change it you did you did change the vibe of parents magazine yeah it's like parenting is fun so let's have fun and then the pressure is so high let's give ourselves a break let's find a reason to laugh at ourselves let's use this form to confess our silliest mistakes and all of that as we're learning and trying to be good at what is in many cases the most important job we'll ever have so it was a great 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 magazine and it's still great my um, I hired my successor Julia Edelstein she was my executive editor there so she's now running it and I'm over at Real Simple. I love your story because you say that you on a whim almost moved to New York sent your resume everywhere and it's like if you just give yourself that chance. You never know what's going to happen, right? It's not like you knew somebody who knew somebody who had a foot in. It's like you were in Cleveland, a young girl in Cleveland who grew up loving storytelling. I love that you went to school studying business. I did the same thing. I went to school studying business. I was like, I'm not even good at this. Why am I doing this? (laughs) And if you could only see, you know, in 10, 20 years down the road, what your life can be, if you just take a chance, I think is so cool. And it's such a good And sometimes when you have like a big dream, like moving to New York or something that seems just absolutely insurmountable, taking that first step is the momentum that you need. And in my case, it was literally sending out cover letters and resumes to HR departments at magazines thinking, what have I got to lose? If they ignore it, they ignore it. If I get some interviews, I said, I booked a plane ticket for these three days. I'll be in New York. Love to talk to you. And I had like 12 interviews in those four days because people are like, sure. A a lot of people are intimidated by media and entertainment industries that are located, I think on the coasts, because they think that, like you said, if you don't know somebody, if you don't have a leg in, if you don't already live there, that there's no way to break in. But those people are almost always from somewhere else and started from somewhere else. That's such a good point. And in between you moving to New York and where you are now, you also had some babies of your own. You did. And how old are your girls now? Oh, they're twins. They're identical girls and they are 15. And I can't believe that they're 15. It's such a cliche, but just hug those toddlers and preschoolers and school-age kids. You are going to blink and they are going to be big girls. I know everyone Um, says that, but it is a good reminder because even today when I'm like running up here away from my two and a half year old, I got to just snuggle her because she changes more and more every day. And before you know it, she's going to be a teenager. Um, so you had, oh my God, you had twins. You had, <laughs> I mean, I cannot imagine having twins and you were working at one of these jobs at the time. What was that like? They were the hardest years of my life and I'm not going to sugarcoat it because I had just gotten that prevention job. My first national editor-in-chief job. I was in charge of the whole brand. Oh my goodness. So books, digital, magazine, all is very high profile. They had me doing a lot of TV. It was important to them that I be 
out there a lot. So it was a very demanding job. My husband and I had struggled for years emotionally to decide if we wanted to have any children at all. So we decided we were going to have one child. And when I got pregnant and it was identical twins, like everybody we know, like laughed at us because we thought, okay, one child's manageable. We'll just put it in a backpack and take it wherever we go. Like, I'm so clueless. And again, another cliche, like God's laughing while you're making plans. And so... In some ways, the exhaustion of the early years is just insurmountable. You just have to get through it. But in some ways, it was a little bit easier professionally for me because particularly on weekends and at night, when the girls would nap, there were two naps a day, I would go right back to work. And I had a husband who was so supportive. And so how do I do it? One of the ways I did it is I had a lot of help. (laughs) I didn't do it on my own. I'm not a single mother. I don't know how single people do it. I had a husband who handed me dinner and like took it away. And I had the little beanbag lap desk from Barnes and Noble. I still have it on which I sat on that sofa in our little house with two babies napping upstairs. The minute they fell asleep, I would write the book or work on the magazine. And then if they were up, I was with them. And so those sleep breaks, I was able to sort of divide my time. But things fall by the wayside. They absolutely do. You cannot have it all. My career and the girls, those were my priorities, but my friendships suffered. I haven't been to a Broadway show in 10 years. I haven't, you know, I didn't watch as much TV as I used to. And I almost stopped completely reading for pleasure. And I've been able, of course, to pick those things up again, but something has to give and sleep couldn't be one of them for me. So, right. I love how honest you are because looking at you, you think like this woman has it all together. It's easy for her. And you easily say, no, this was hard. Raising two little babies while soaring in my career. I mean, yeah. it was, it's like a massive amount of pressure and work. And I love that you can just easily admit it is really hard. Yeah, It is really hard. And those early months, those early months with any baby, and people would say to me, oh my God, you have twins, good luck. Like they'd see me in the mall or whatever. And they'd see two <laughs> Thanks. Babies. I would always say to myself, yes, I have it hard, but I feel like moms who have a newborn and maybe like a two-year-old or a three-year-old or an 18-month-old, they have it even harder because yes, I had to do everything twice, but it was the same thing. <laughs> And they could be on the same schedule. And in a way, it was almost easier. I love um, I love that you say that because I look at you and I'm like, that's the hardest thing. And then you say no. And I had, you know, my kids 20 <laughs> something months apart. And I like, I think See? twins would be harder, but it's always right. We always think the other thing is. Yeah. See, if when my infant fell asleep, I could fall asleep or work. You have your other child who now needs and wants their mommy time. That's, that's very that true. That push and pull is is very difficult. And you also say that in addition to admitting that it's really hard, that you had a lot of support and help. And I feel like for me, that was a big struggle to even ask for help because I, for some reason, had this ridiculous idea in my mind that I should I should do it all myself, right? And then I talk openly on social media that I was horribly depressed postpartum, both I think from a hormonal aspect and then from a situational, I refused to ask for help when I needed it. But you say that you had a support. And one thing I really like you said is that your husband gave you dinner and took it away so you could get your stuff done. So will you just talk to me about your support system, like your village that got you through? 
I have two points I'd make. One is it required me to give up my type A control over everything in our lives, the grocery yes. shopping, the eating. The, and the fact that I went on bed rest for six weeks before they were born, I couldn't leave my bed. And we had moved in two days prior. We'd moved from our New York apartment to our big teeny house. <laughs> it was right. huge to us then. Right now I look at it, it looks like a she shed now when I drive that. <laughs> um, but it was like this palatial thing. And I couldn't even unpack. He had to unpack our first house. He had to organize the bookshelves. He had to do all the cooking, all the clean, all of it. And there was nothing I can do except sit upstairs and cry that he was doing it the wrong way. Um, and so that, <laughs> so I had to get over it. And, you know, when you give people the chance and that forced me to give him the chance, now he realized he loves to cook. He loves the sort of practical, organized nature of grocery shopping. To this day, he does all the cooking and grocery shopping. So there's it. part of like making yourself let go. That's part of it. The other part I will say is that I came from a place of extreme privilege. Neither of us, um, both sides of our family, they're in Cleveland and we thought we could do it all ourselves. So we didn't ask any parents to come. We thought we could do it all. I didn't even buy bottles because I thought I was going to breastfeed exclusively. These oh, times. I did that too. That was all right. So about 48 hours after they were born, I was like, oh my God, I am so in over my head. I can't do any of this. But everybody that we knew was in Cleveland and my privilege comes in and that I had enough money to hire a nanny, a babysitter. And while I was home on maternity leave, I used that money for night nurses, which is such like a rich person's thing to even say. But it, like twice a week, I was able to hire somebody to come from eight o'clock at night to eight o'clock in the morning. At 8.05, I went to bed and I woke up at 7.55 in the morning before they left. And so twice a week, I knew that I would get a good night's sleep and that was worth every penny. And I had a mentor who said, throw money at the problem. She was my boss at the time. And I said, but I don't have money to throw at any problem. Like I was not making, this was very much a middle-class salary. And she's like, even if you have to dig into your savings for these first few weeks, get the help that you need to get your mental health to get through it. And it was the best money I ever had. And so I've also had that nanny, her name is Lori, has been with us since the girls were five days old. And still, well, recently the girls are in high school now. So I have, but she's still part of your life. She's still part of our life, but she was with us for 14 years. And she as much raised the girls as we did because she had been a maternity ward nurse. She knew, you know, how to sterilize the bottles and all of that. And, you know, so the whole tone of the house changed because somebody who knew what they were doing walked in and helped us. And I say that because I'm very, very fortunate to be able to work full time and to also have been able to afford that nanny four days a week. Steve always wanted to have one day where it was just daddy day. Even when they were infants, Friday was always daddy day. I was like, oh my God. But so many women in this country, because we don't have a childcare system, because we don't support parenting, and support the family, they don't have that choice. So it is a juggling act. It is a three-ring circus driving to daycare. And, and I never had to do that. I could leave my house and my babysitter was there. And I have trustworthy childcare that I could afford only because I had that extra money. So I feel very, not just fortunate, but privileged. And I know how rare that is. And that's why I feel so passionately that we have to do something about universal daycare in this country. What are the issues that you think 
parents in general need to work on or society as a whole needs to work on for mothers to excel in the workplace? I don't think it's the corporations in this country. I think it has to come from a government level. This sounds very liberal of me, but I think that the government has to mandate or supply affordable, if not free, childcare to families of all income levels in this country. And not just for the first year, but I would say for the years zero through five until school can kick in. Because I see the juggle. I've done a little bit of the juggle, but I see the juggle of even when pre-K starts, some communities, pre-K is half a day. It's almost like more work than it's worth. For the mother to like get the child ready for the two hours that they'll be, you know, that's not allowing the mother to go to work, excel in her career, do her side hustle, exercise, sleep, whatever she wants to do. Like we have to support families. And sometimes, and thankfully, it's not always the mother. It usually is in much of traditional America, but it could be the fathers. I have many women, female friends who they are the breadwinners and the husband is at home and the husband needs a break. Or you have single families. I have many people who work around me with me in the media business who are single mothers. And I cannot imagine what life would be like. Amen. God, it's so true. So I realized very early on in motherhood that I was not cut out to be a stay-at-home mom, a full-time stay-at-home mom, but I struggled with mom guilt like a lot of us do, right? I had to do it all, be it all, see it all, or I sucked. Was this something that you ever struggled with? Yeah, it's really the grass is always greener, you know, the push and pull. If you're at work, you feel like you should be home. If you're at home, you should feel like you should be at work. I made the decision very early and it was part of the process when Steve and I talked about what kind of family we wanted that I knew that I wanted to work. And so first of all, I had to have a partner who bought into that idea that I was not going to be sitting at home for the first 10 years of our kids' lives. That's not what I was made of. That wasn't going to be good for me either, but I did want a family and I did want to give my heart to other human beings in the way that you do when you have children and all of that. But I always knew that I would go back to work and I made the decision that I wasn't going to ruin the time I had at either place by pining for the other place. I credit my mother to this. She's of German stock and, you know, just like, (laughs) let's just have fortitude and, you know, let's not look back at our past and wine. Let's just chip away and do what we have to do. So I was like, look, if I'm going to be at work, I'm just going to let myself enjoy it. And when I'm at home, I am going to be all in and with these girls. Did I miss things? Of course. I didn't miss a lot because I think the media is pretty progressive in terms of letting mothers and fathers come and go for school recitals and all that kind of stuff. So I was there for the big moments, but I missed a lot of small moments. And I think that's the trade-off when you're not home every day, you miss those small moments and they are the bright threads in the fabric of being a mom. So I just knew that I would miss some of them and it was just going to have to be okay. I love that. It's not going to be perfect. And you just need to be okay with having it not be perfect. You're going to miss some stuff. Yeah. This pandemic and being home, even though they're 15 now, being home and being in the house all day with my girls and my husband and my dog, it's a whole different way of living. 
because they're self-sufficient, again, I am lucky that I can focus on my job, but I can also overhear the small moment that's happening. And if I want to go be a part of it, I can go be a part of it. I can, because I'm a grown up. I can divvy up my day so that I'm there for whatever is, if, you know, to, we want to take a hike or whatever. And I really think that this is going to be a turning point in corporate culture in America. And I don't think we'll ever go back to eight to six plus your commute in some office five days a week. I don't think anybody's going to do it because I think from the highest CEO to the middle managers to the people below them, did it all the way down to me. (laughs) Everybody sees that this can work. And yes, we're going to come together. Yes, we'll be back in office buildings. And we need that for particularly for creative industries. But I'm a better editor. I'm a better writer. I'm a better human being. I'm a better employee. I'm a better manager because I have this more well-rounded life. I can feel that in my bones the last six months. That is so interesting. I was talking to somebody the other day and her husband still has to go into the office right now in a suit to have virtual meetings. Oh, for God's sake. Because it's so backwards and it is not in a creative field. But I thought, I wonder if the people who are working from home now, see if I have the self-discipline to get up and do my work, I should be able to do it from anywhere. We're able to do that with the technology that we have. And for mothers too, I think you make such a good point. Like if I hear the small moment, I can go join it. That's what makes sense. In addition to the Mm -hmm. affordable childcare and... What are other issues you feel like we need to pay attention to in order for mothers to excel? Well, the childcare we talked about, I think the second thing is probably mental health and not just postpartum depression, although that's very much a part of it. There's a greater awareness now, thank God. Postpartum anxiety. These are very real sort of permutations of PPD. They're very real. But I think just cycle emotionally, figuring out how to share that mental load with your partner, with your childcare provider, whatever your team or village is, even if they're doing half of the tasks being able to offload, thinking about the grocery list. Like if you're going to grocery shop, then it's your job to notice that we are out of bread. So let me just take huge chunks out of my brain. And I think that for primary caregivers, whether that's the mother or the father, it's very difficult to give up that control first of all. But second of all, it's impossible if your partner isn't picking up the slack they need to be having that mental churn of, have I signed up for camp and it's February? Have I signed up for, you know, when's the pediatrician's appointment? Like if that's somebody's job, they need to take on all of that. I feel like right now that's a big shift and struggle that many households are having. We're a lot farther along here on the coasts, I think, and in liberal communities. I think if you have more of a conservative marriage or a conservative husband, they aren't even having those conversations. And so I believe that that's leading to a lot of unhappiness, depression, anxiety with mom. My husband said to me when I was super depressed as a stay-at-home mom, what do you want Ava to see when she grows up? Do you want this life for her? Do you want her to feel like she needs to be trapped in the home because that's what your mom did because that's what you think you have to do? Does that make sense to you? And I was like, no, I want her to follow her dreams as corny as that sounds and do whatever she wants. How do you feel like your 
work life and just the way that you've structured your life, how do you feel like that's impacted your girls? I think that we've both shown and told them I have the opposite of what is traditional. You know, daddy's a photographer. So when he has a shoot, he's gone for nine days. And so we have to make it. But if he's not, he's home. He's the one who's every day put them in the car and let's go to the park and they need something. They say, dada, dada. Like they know he's the one who's probably going to be more available to do the annoying task than mommy who's probably working or on a call or whatever. So there are going to be sort of no gender biases in their heads whatsoever. And I've also tried to point out things to them about their father (laughs) that are maybe, I'm not saying this, but maybe these are things that they will look for in a partner themselves. And I'll be like, you know, daddy seems like he can never sit down. It's annoying because sometimes you want him to sit down and have a conversation or play a game, but he's like always sort of like doing stuff and puttering around. And I always try to showcase and point out the upside of that. Like find yourself a partner who can't sit still. Look what daddy did today because he can't sit still. He cut the lawn. That's so he good. He fixed your thing. He went and did that. Find yourself a partner who can't sit still. Find yourself a partner who can't, you know, so I keep sort of like putting those those nuggets into your, and sometimes like now that they're teenagers, I don't know how many of your listeners have teenagers, but teenagers start to turn on their parents. They start to sort of see them as human beings and in all their faults for the first time, they're like, oh, well, that's annoying what you do or why are you, and so we have a lot of discussions about that. Me and the girls will be like, well, daddy's so annoying in this way and that way. And I'm able to say to them, you know what? Everybody's annoying in some way. And one of the things when I was picking a partner, <laughs> trying to make it sound like I was like, I went to <laughs> at the shop, yeah. <laughs> <an Excel spreadsheet, laughs> right? When I was picking a partner, they, one of the things they say is like, look at the things that are annoying about that person. They're never going to go away and either decide to get over them or maybe if you can't live with them, you know, maybe they're not the person for you. But I keep saying, nobody's perfect. The secret to a marriage for the first couple of years, everybody's on their best behavior. But the long haul, we're all real human beings. And we're all like gross and irritating and crabby and all those things come with the package. And so it's important for you to realize that. that, that it's you all are, you're amazing. It's so true. <laughs> and I think like your partner's not going to change. These annoying yeah. things that you think, mm, like maybe I'll get him to stop biting his cuticles. Like, no, he's never right. going to stop ever, yeah. probably. Yeah. So just yeah. focus on I mean, the good. I marry somebody who's, who, who does this gross thing. The girls, <laughs> I married him because he's A, B, C, D, and E. And I, the gross thing comes with the package. So, <laughs> I love it. I love it. My listeners have toddlers. Some of them do have kids that are grown and out of school, I know. But what is your advice to a woman who is in the zero to five phase of motherhood, who may be struggling emotionally, mentally, just struggling with the whole thing? What is your advice to them? You know, first of all, seek the help that you need. There's so many resources that are available from online therapy, talk therapy, text therapy, as well as in-person therapy. So that's first and foremost. And maybe you don't need that intensity of treatment, but just look into it anyway, because it's not going to hurt you. So to find and ask for the help that you need medically 
The other thing I would say, just sort of from like a 60,000 foot view, a lot of parents who are in those years are constantly reading about how important developmentally these years are for their kids. And it's a lot of talk about milestones. And so there's this feeling, this constant sort of almost unconscious feeling that any misstep, and if I take my eye off the ball for one second, it's all going to fall apart. Like this whole burden is on my shoulders for the health and happiness and success of this future human being. Like I would tell 27-year-old Liz, you know, just put all of that to the side and do the best you can. For millennia, parents didn't have the knowledge that we had, didn't know what should be happening in the development. And yes, if something is wrong or we're all reading to our children more and that's because we know how important it is, the big things you're going to do, you're going to do them because they're almost instinctual now. But let yourself off the hook for the other stuff because they're going to be fine, number one. And number two, they're not going to remember one second of it. I've had this quiz. I was like, do you remember your blah, blah, blah recital at the so-and-so nursery school? They're like, no, no. It's like, no, you don't remember. Lori and I both came and we both both (laughs) both redheads. So it was important to me to be there. But human beings remember very little of what happens in their lives before age five. So let yourself zone out on your Instagram four out of seven nights a week instead of putting together the craft project or whatever it is. Like, it's okay. 